Welcome to Breaking Green Ceilings, the podcast that amplifies the diverse voices of those who are committed to protecting and sustainably managing our natural environment. I'm your host, Sapna Mulki. Let's get started. I recently learned about Andy Kriken's contribution to water equity and immediately reached out to him wanting to learn more. Andy Kriken has 35 years of wastewater management experience, and he served as the executive director of the Camden County Municipal Utilities Authority in New Jersey. One of the reasons why I asked Andy to be on Breaking Green Ceilings is because I see him as an ally and I have been trying to promote values of diversity, equity and inclusion in my work in the water industry. And that includes water equity, which is what Andy Kriken also strongly aligns with. Andy truly sees and understands the impact of environmental injustice and has demonstrated his commitment to promoting water equity as he has worked within a system that may not necessarily see the same all the time. So in our conversation, we primarily focused on how he went about implementing projects in and around the wastewater treatment plant that he oversaw to help improve the livelihoods of neighboring residents. So Camden is one of the most economically and environmentally distressed communities in the country. And the neighborhoods primarily are African-American and Hispanic populations that face brownfields, Superfund sites and heavy industrial operations located very close to their residences. Andy and I talked about a $50 million odor control project he prioritized when he became the executive director of the Utility Authority and collaborations he has nurtured with local organizations to create waterfront access for Camden residents through green infrastructure projects. He also shares his strategy on how he overcame the challenges of trying to convince decision makers on the importance of investing in these projects. And so I think these are lessons that could be useful to many water utility professionals who find themselves interested in implementing water equity projects. And I hope that Andy's story inspires you. We'll start here from the beginning. If you can tell us how you find yourself working in the water sector. Sure. Thanks, Sapna. Well, I graduated from college in 1985 as a chemical engineer. I was looking for jobs in the chemical engineering and environmental engineering field and happened to find out about it and opening at the wastewater utility in my county, in Camden County, New Jersey, and applied for the job and got it and ended up really liking the mission so much that I ended up staying at the utility for 34 years. Mm. And so how did you become interested in environmental engineering? Were there any personal experiences that got you curious and passionate about that subject? Well, I have to give a lot of thanks to my high school chemistry teacher who encouraged me to go for chemical engineering because of my real enjoyment of chemistry and also math. So that was his recommendation. And so I was applying for all sorts of chemical engineering and environmental engineering jobs. Ended up getting the job at the water utility and then ended up, it happened at a time when the water utility was implementing a program to clean up all the rivers and streams of the county. And I just loved the mission so much that I decided to stay. So I hadn't proactively thought I was going to go into environmental engineering necessarily, but when I was lucky enough to get my job, my first job in that field, I just fell in love with the opportunity to make a positive difference. I guess I would say that 
I think everyone has to make a living, but if you can make a living and make a difference, then that's really a blessing. And so I'd always thought that when I was 22, that I was going to volunteer and I did volunteer for things, you know, outside of work, but I hadn't really realized that one could do, have a profession that would be mission driven as well. And so I was really like fortunate to fall into it and then fall in love with it. Yeah. There are very few organizations that actually do that in terms of having a mission that people can really be motivated by or kind of see themselves in and also make a living. So yeah, you were lucky. <laughs> was, I really was. <laughs> so the time that you've spent at the utility, how have you had an opportunity to evolve and how has your perspective around water issues changed or evolved? That's a really good question. So I started out right out of college as an entry-level engineer and gradually worked my way up through the utility to become the deputy executive director and then the chief engineer and then ultimately the executive director, the head of the agency. And as I grew it with the utility, my perception also grew. So initially, I was very, as I had said, very motivated about the mission of the utility to bring Camden County into compliance with the Clean Water Act and to uh, clean up the rivers and streams of the county. And I thought that was really a very worthwhile thing to do. And it absolutely was. But what I also came to see was that while that work is very important, protecting the rivers and, and streams of the jurisdictions that you're serving, it isn't all that you can do. That isn't the ceiling of what a water utility can do. And I happened to be maybe lucky again to be working for a utility that was located in one of the poorest cities in the country, uh, Camden City, New Jersey, a very, very economically distressed community. And our wastewater treatment plant was right in the, the heart of the community, 100 yards away from a residential neighborhood. So I could really see that although the treatment plant was doing a very good job in cleaning you know, the sewage and protecting the Delaware River, you know, the, the receiving stream, we were also having an adverse impact on our neighboring community because of the odorous nature of the wastewater treatment process. So I came to evolve that and see that, again, wastewater treatment is very important and essential, but it represents a portion of what we as a water utility should be doing that we also should be seeking to try to make a positive difference for our community. That grew over time into a, basically having a utility go from being somewhat indifferent to our residential neighborhood to striving to be an anchor institution in the city of Camden and in the water sector. Right. I love that you say that it wasn't the ceiling for you in terms of just being able to provide water to a community. It's it's going above and beyond that and being part of a community's well-being. And I think that's something that the water industries is in a way lucky to do. And that is within their purview if they so wanted to go beyond just water supply and delivery because the way I see it, without water, we wouldn't exist. And so the water utility has an opportunity to make that connection between human well-being and environmental sustainability as far as water supply and delivery goes. That's right. I agree. So it's really fantastic that you've been able to to kind of harness that in a sense. So one thing that you mentioned earlier on is that you were working with a community to reduce the or end the odors, <laughs> the hazardous odors in the community. So that's sort of like one of the reasons why I was interested in talking to you more is your commitment to water equity. And I was curious to know, what does it mean to you? That's a good question. Well, to me, it means that your zip code should not determine 
whether or not you have safe drinking water, whether or not your rivers and streams are polluted or clean, whether or not you have sewage backing up in your basement when it rains, or whether or not you have to experience odors from a nearby wastewater treatment plant. Everyone, no matter where they live, is entitled to certain quality of life things above and beyond water, of course, but we're talking about water. That's what I know about. And for me, it means that you know, no matter where you live, you're entitled to safe drinking water and clean rivers and streams and freedom from adverse impact from water and wastewater treatment plants. Mm-hmm. And then I think it can go beyond that because the water utility can also make a positive difference with respect to programs that make the community better in and of it themselves, such as like green infrastructure programs that have a stormwater removal basis and so therefore are valid projects for a wastewater treatment facility to do, but also can have community benefits like you know greening the city and providing green space and green jobs, et cetera. So my sense of it is, is that the water and wastewater utilities, you know, we have to stay in our lane. We, we're legally obliged to use our revenues in a certain way that has a nexus to what we do. But the mission of the water utility should be to widen that lane as much as possible, to look for opportunities to make as much of a positive difference as possible. Mm-hmm. I can hear the passion in your voice as you explain what water equity means to you. And it made me wonder, where did it source from? It's not everyone who kind of is able to make that connection between equity, water, and human welfare. I think it's something that you really have to kind of be very observant or astute in a sense. And it just makes me wonder what brought water equity to your attention. Well, I was fortunate in the sense that I was working at a very large wastewater treatment plant, an 80 million gallon per day plant, which is larger than most, probably in the 85th percentile. As I said, it was 100 yards away from a residential neighborhood and with no odor control whatsoever. So the impact on the residential neighborhood was very obvious. Mm -hmm. And being a chemical engineer, I knew that the odors could be neutralized with a relatively straightforward, simple process. Not inexpensive. It would be expensive, but it wasn't as though it required the discovery of some uninvented technology. It was relatively well known how one would neutralize the odors from the wastewater treatment plant. So I guess the injustice of that was right in front of me. And then Camden City is one of the most economic distressed communities in the entire country. So it was just very palpable how and evident how distressed they were. So I would say that I graduated first from, and my thinking graduated or evolved and so did our, into the management ranks and then to the head of the utility. I mean, first, I would say that we started with maybe being indifferent to the community. It wasn't as though not having odor control was purposeful. It was just a matter of not thinking about it. We were, the utility was focused on treating water and just was not thinking about the impact, the adverse impact it was having on the neighborhood. But unintentional indifference can also cause as much harm as intentional desired harm. So I think we graduated to that notion of going from indifference to doing no harm, that we should at least neutralize the polluters and not cause any harm to the community while we accomplish our mission for water treatment. Then that evolved to say that doing no harm is good, but it's sort of morally neutral. And we certainly had the capacity to be a good neighbor. So then we strove to be a good neighbor by implementing various projects that impacted our direct community. But ultimately... I saw, and since I was leading the utility, we saw that we could do more than that, that we could widen our lean and look at everything that we did with the intentionality of how can we do, accomplish our mission, our environmental mission, while also doing as much community good 
as possible. And so the ultimate aim was to strive to be an anchor institution. I will say that what inspired me, besides the, just seeing what was happening in Camden, was the amazing like, courage and resilience of the neighbors themselves. They were just really, I don't want to be like idealistic. I mean, there were obviously people that in the second just community that were doing criminal things and wrong things, and just like any community. But I think the people that were trying to make a positive difference and live their lives in a way, uh, in such, such adversity and in such a heroic way, I thought, was very inspiring. And I felt that I, I was very lucky because I was inspired by the courage of the community leaders. Right. And so the plant had been around for how many years before you started there? Well, it was built by the city of Camden in, in 1954. And then the regional authority, the county that I worked for, took it over in, in the late 70s and 78. So when I started there in 1985, the plant had been there for 30 years and it had been and run by the county regional authority by for seven. Right. And just kind of draw a picture for us of what this neighborhood looks like. It's not only the wastewater plant that is surrounding it, but there are also other environmentally hazardous industries that are close within their neighborhood. Is that correct? That is correct. So I, I would say that this neighborhood, which is called the Waterfront South the community of Camden City, is almost like the perfect epitome of environmental justice or environmental injustice, you know, disproportionate burden. So in this one square mile, 2,000 residents live. It's a post-industrial type community. So there was a lot of industry along the river where people used to live in the neighborhood and walk to work. So there's a lot of industry nearby, but there's also a lot of abandoned industry. So there were, in this one square mile, there were two EPA Superfund sites. So you know, extreme contamination, plus 28 state recorded brownfield sites, all within this one square mile. And then in addition, you know, Camden County is a county of 500,000 residents. And the wastewater treatment plant really had to be on the river because that was the low point of the county. So but all the wastewater, all the sewage, all the, the toilets flushed in the entire county would go to this one neighborhood where the treatment plant was. But in addition, they chose to put the trash facility there too, the solid waste facility in the same neighborhood. So basically all the trash and all the sewage, everything that's not wanted from a, a home of a county of over 500,000 people went to this one community of 2,000 people. So between the historic environmental contamination, the ongoing industry, and then the solid waste and sewage, it really was a completely overburdened community. Yeah, that's very unfortunate. And it just breaks my heart as you describe the environment or the sort of the suppressive environment to their neighborhoods. So for 30 years, you mentioned that uh, leadership was indifferent. We get it, like they didn't necessarily think about it. What made you make it a priority to mutualize the odors coming from the wastewater treatment plant? For me personally, social justice is something that has always been really important to me. And so like I had thought that as a chemical engineer, I would do my job as a chemical engineer, but then I would volunteer for things. And I did, you know, when I was in college and in my early years, and even afterwards, you know, volunteering for like uh, the Philadelphia Committee for the Homeless and literacy programs. So I, I believe that the two most important things in your life are to be appreciative of life's blessings, and then also to give as much back as you can. And so that was just something I always felt innately, but I didn't necessarily know that I would have the luck, good fortune, to be able to do that in my career as well. So I wanted to do that. And so when I saw this, this tremendous injustice, and then, as I say, I happened to be a chemical engineer, so I knew what the solution would be. It just seemed so evident that that should be done. And then when it wasn't, I just felt like the sting of seeing this an injustice that could be corrected continued. So 
I vowed that when I got a chance to be in the management team, eventually, if I stayed long enough and was able to be promoted, that I would put a stop to it. And one thing I found was that, and this would be my advice to people who are in decision-making situations, but have to deal with policymakers and decision-makers above them, is that it definitely makes things a lot easier if you can find a way to accomplish what you want uh, while also accomplishing or finding out what it is that other people want. So for example, the reason that they didn't want to implement this odor control is firstly, maybe they didn't know the solution, but then when it was presented to them that it could be done in this way, then the concern was, well, we'd have to raise rates and that would be very unpopular to raise the rates, et cetera. But ultimately, I was able to find a way to do it without raising the rates. So my advice would be to people who are trying to make a positive difference is, first of all, to look at every opportunity as a possibility to try to make a positive difference. Look for with an intentionality of how can you implement this project in a way that does the most good. But then you'll encounter people who believe that too, hopefully, and they'll be on your side and that's to the good. However, you're bound to encounter people that aren't similarly motivated. And so it's important to think about what is it that motivates them and how can you find a way to accomplish what you want to accomplish, the right thing, while also either pleasing them or at least appeasing them so that they're not going to be opposing what you want to do. So when I found out what the big opposition was a rate increase, their fear was that you know, suburban ratepayers would object to having their rates go up to benefit only this one neighborhood. But once I was able to figure out a way to do it in a rate neutral way, then no one had any objections. So that made it a lot easier. That's interesting. So this one suburban population was less willing for their rates to go up only with the intention of helping a poorer neighborhood, like have improved air quality, it sounds like. <laughs> well, in fairness, it wasn't as though like there was a poll taken of the suburban. Yeah. It was just that the policymakers feared that. Mm-hmm. They feared that a rate increase would ail, because you know, nobody likes rate increases. They feared that a rate increase would be unpopular, so they wanted to avoid it at all costs. But when I was able to say that we could have our cake and eat it too, we could accomplish this thing for the community without a rate increase that would be unpopular to not just the suburbanites, but also to the city too, then I was able to go full speed ahead. Yeah. I think your approach is so smart. Water rates is one of those sort of Pandora's box that most utilities try to avoid opening. And I guess I shouldn't call it a Pandora's box. That's a bad description of it. But it's, I think, from what I've seen, utilities tend to be afraid to raise rates only because of the potential backlash that may result from it. And quite rightfully, in certain situations, where most people or the decision makers who would kind of sign off on installing the technology or the filters rather to mutualize the odors, Were most of them on board when you said that we didn't need to raise rates, but there were other things that we could do in order to like find the funds within the organization to fund the technology? Yes. So it took me about 10 years from the time I joined the utility right out of college, you know, so, you know, just with no work experience whatsoever until I became the deputy director of the authority when I was 33. By then, I had seen that. It wasn't as though they were like opposed to helping the community. It was just that they were opposed to raising rates. And so I had 10 years to sort of think about that and realize that if I could come up with ways to make a positive difference for the community, then I only really had two things to worry about. One, of course, it has to be legal. Public entity can't, has, can only use its water rates in legally allowable ways. Uh, we have to stay within our lane. And second, avoid raising rates. But as long as I could meet those two criteria, then 
it would be carte blanche for me to do anything that was reasonable, you know, was, was legally reasonable for a water utility to do and also cost efficient. So basically, I started with odor control because that was the most immediate thing. But then I found there were other things that, and the, the policymakers agreed right away when I showed that it could be done without raising rates. And the thing is, is that what I ended up doing at our water utility is very much replicable in other water utilities. It really just involved optimizing internal efficiency and making use of available funding that's available to every utility in the country. So basically, it wasn't rocket science. It was really just a matter of knowing what to do and having a tenacity toward accomplishing an intentionality, really, toward making a positive difference. So it started with odor control, and that brought us to being doing no harm. But it grew to trying to you know, deal with other things that made a positive difference for the community, like green infrastructure and, and greening the city. The nexus there was that since Camden City has a combined sewer system, reducing stormwater meant uh, reducing flow to the wastewater treatment plant. So therefore, it was a completely le- legal and, and also appropriate thing for our utility to do, but we could do it in a way that maximized the benefit to the residential community that we were serving. All right. So what about for utilities who would have to raise their rates in order to give consideration to principles of water equity? Do you have any suggestions or advice for them? Well, first of all, like I said earlier, there will be those who will see that it's the right thing to do in and of itself. And so that's sort of good, but there will always be people that don't look at it that way. I think the thing then is to be transparent, to point out that, for example, I remember one person from a suburban town complained that I was using our funds to build a riverfront park in Camden City for the residents there. And I said, well, the reason is, is that we're soaking up stormwater and it's, you know, I explained how, why we were doing it. He said, well, you should build one in our town too with our rates. And I said, well, if you would let us move the wastewater treatment plant from the resident neighborhood in Camden to your neighborhood, we'll build a park there too. And it was a little snappy on my part, but you know what? It was, it was the right thing to say because this person did get it. He said, you know, that that's only fair. You're right. And also the other thing is, it's very important is to show that you're efficient because there's two things that really drive people say against water equity or like raising rates for water equity. One would be that maybe they just don't understand it. Like that's sort of innately wrong and that's hard to deal with. But the other thing is, is there's the presumption that public sector entities are inefficient and so therefore they're really wasting money. So one of the things that I implemented at the very beginning when I became the deputy director of this authority was to implement an ISO 14001 program, which is an international standard for efficiency, and got an annual certification from a a third-party certifying group that we were optimally efficient, that we were taking every dollar and spending it efficiently. And so by doing that, our rates only went up 4% total in 24 years, from 1996 to 2020, not 4% a year, 4% total. So really, it was like a 40% reduction when you count inflation. So the fact that we were not raising rates year after year after year, and in fact, as inflation rose, the real inflation adjusted rate was actually going down in a sense. People accepted what we were doing. We had their faith and they trusted us. So I think that was important. And I think the other thing too is that we were very transparent. I think the old paradigm for water utilities and maybe wastewater utilities was to stay away from the public, stay away from the newspapers stay away from regulators and stay under the radar. Um, I remember hearing that a lot. But I think the reverse is true. If the only time you're ever talking to the public or the newspapers or the regulators is when you've had a sewage spill or a boil water alert, then you have no credibility. Instead, you should be telling them all the time, this is what we're doing. This is why we're doing it. And when we did raise the rates, as I said, it did go up $15 a year one time. There was one rate increase and I got no complaints because 
And I explained why the, what the reason was the, for the rate increase. We had public hearings, explained it. And because we had gained credibility with the public, I think they understood it. So I think my advice would be is try to avoid that if you can, because if you can remove opposition to what you're trying to do, that makes your path a lot smoother. But if it can't be avoided, then be transparent and explain why you're doing this, why it's the right thing to do and why there's no other remedy for it. Right. You make such a good point because at the end of the day, people are not against paying for something if they feel like they're getting their money's worth. And like you said, if you are explaining to them how every penny is going to be used and not only doing that when you want the rate increase, but actually building some sort of goodwill with the community and being present in that community, it makes it easier for you to explain to them the nature of water treatment and supply and people then can actually be more willing to give you their dollar. Absolutely. People appreciate transparency and sincerity. Right, right. And I think we're slowly within the industry trying to get that and not be shy about communicating with our customers only when we want something. And that kind of speaks to your point of you kind of building this brand of the utility as an anchor institution within the city. And one of the ways in which you were kind of demonstrating that was by investing in a green stormwater infrastructure program. Could you tell us a little bit about how that came about and how it was implemented? Yes. So it started, as I said, we started by seeking to do no harm, eliminating the odors. And then when we'd accomplished that, or as we were accomplishing that, I felt that that wasn't enough, that we needed to make up to the community for our indifference. So I looked around to see what could we do that was within our legal ability, but would be above and beyond what we were required to do. And what I saw was that the city of Canada had a combined sewage flooding problem. When it rained, the sewage would back up to the streets or into the basements or into the river. And the reason why that wasn't our legal obligation was because the city of Camden actually owned the sewer system, not the county regional utility that I belong to. So it wasn't our legal obligation, but I thought that that was certainly something that that was water-based that was having a tremendously negative effect on our neighbors and all the residents of the city. So if I could find a way, a nexus to to take that on, that I could support, then that would be the next thing to do. And then try to do it in a way that provided maximal benefit. So as I said, it was easy to see that by eliminating the stormwater, not only would you be reducing combined sewage flooding, but you'd also be reducing flow to the wastewater treatment plant. So there was the nexus was there. And I was really lucky that across the river from Camden in Camden, New Jersey, across the Delaware River is the city of Philadelphia. And there was the leading proponent and maybe the father of green infrastructure in the United States, the former Philadelphia Water Commissioner, Howard Newcrug. So I reached out to him and asked him how he had done it. He was very, he and his team were very gracious in giving us their playbook on how to implement green infrastructure. I had to do it a little differently because in the city of Philadelphia, they owned everything. So it wasn't only their opportunity, it was also their legal obligation. Here, that wasn't the case for us. So I had to do it as more of an outsider. So instead, we built up a team of people that were working on the the combined sewage flooding problem. We partnered with the State University, uh, Rutgers uh, University. We partnered with the State Department of Environmental Protection. We partnered with New Jersey Tree Foundation. And also we partnered with community nonprofits that were located in the city, like the Cooper's Ferry Town Partnership and other community nonprofits that were in each neighborhood. And basically we did it as a, it was all voluntary. And there were two reasons to do that. One is because we did need their help, their expertise, but also because it was voluntary on our part, it was better to be part of a crowd than be the forward, outward facing entity because the people would say, well, why are you doing that? 
we're all doing this. We're part of a team. And, and by the way, our, the reason we're doing is we're reducing stormwater to our wastewater treatment plant. So one thing I will say is that if you're thinking about implementing projects like this, wherever you are, be thoughtful in advance of what would the objections be? What are your opponents going to say? And try to think, no one can anticipate anything, but it's so much better to have it, whatever, think of whatever you can in advance so that you're dealing with it proactively instead of reactively. And so that partnership was really successful. We ended up greening 125 acres in Camden City and creating five riverfront parks and over 60 rain gardens. We implemented a rain barrel program. And then one thing that was really like indicative of this idea of striving to do everything with an intentionality to do as much good as possible is we also implemented a green jobs program. So the reason, and you might say that this, that would be far afield from the wastewater utility, but no, because first it was the nexus to build green infrastructure because of the stormwater capture component. And then the green infrastructure has to be maintained. You know, the city of Canada didn't have a parks department for us to turn the green infrastructure over to the way the city of Philadelphia did, for example. So our utility had to maintain the green infrastructure. So we could have hired a landscaping company to do it and paid a certain amount of money. But instead, we looked again across the river to the city of Philadelphia and saw a really great program that they had implemented called PowerCorps Philadelphia, which was the city got an AmeriCorps grant to hire at-risk youth in the city of Philadelphia to maintain the green infrastructure. And so we borrowed the same exact program, got the same AmeriCorps grant with the city of Philadelphia's coaching. We got an AmeriCorps grant for Camden and the way the grant works is that AmeriCorps provides about 50% of the, of the funds. The regional utility that I worked for provided about two-thirds of the 50% remainder, and the city of Camden put in a third. And the idea was is that the at-risk youth would be work, get paid eight hours a day. Five hours a day, they'd be maintaining the rain gardens and the parks of the city, because remember, the park city had no parks department, cleaning sewer inlets, et cetera. So not only accomplishing the green infrastructure means, but also helping the city as well and making their parks more acceptable for the residents. And no extra cost to my utility because the city was paying its one-sixth share. AmeriCorps was paying 50%. So that was their share. Our one-third share was equal to what it would have cost for a professional landscaping company. But the other third of the time, the at-risk youth are getting life skills training and dealing with the things that made them at risk to begin with. So not only are these Youth from 18 to 26 getting a job, getting paid, getting made their first job with benefits for six months, getting training on and getting a real skill, getting someone counseling help to help them with their issues and challenges, and also getting guidance on how to enter the workforce permanently. So it's like work with training wheels in a sense. So they would learn how to show up for work and how to dress for work and how to write a resume. And also we get job placements services to go out into the work world with a certification of experience. And then the next cohort would roll in. So thus far, 300 Camden youth have gone through that program and probably triple that for Philadelphia because Philadelphia is so much bigger. So the idea was that good begets good. It started with wanting to do something good for the community and eliminate their sewage flooding problem. We ended up greening the, the city and providing riverfront parks and at riverfront access to the community and providing jobs for, for at-risk youth, all coming from this idea of stormwater capture but the idea is we looked at it from a lens of intentionality of trying to do as much good as possible while start trying to stay within our lane. So the idea is, yes, you must stay within your legal lane, but how do you widen it as much as possible? Yeah, I'm just so impressed and inspired every time you talk about that story. It's just what I feel or believe that a water wastewater utility should kind of aspire to. And it's really inspiring that Camden, as well as some other cities around the country are actually kind of implementing similar type of objectives. And it just speaks to how 
what you were saying earlier is that you go above and beyond just the water and the wastewater services. You are making the connection between how clean water and effective wastewater services are actually a part of communities' overall health and prosperity is what I kind of see from the example here. That's absolutely right, Sapna. I mean, the idea is that wastewater and water utilities have a lot of resources and they have the potential through indifference to have an adverse impact on the communities. The flip side of that is, is if they act with the right intentionality and look to do as much good as possible, they can have tremendous positive impact on the community. And so all water utilities should strive, especially public, I mean, I think private too, but certainly public utilities. And we're environmental agencies who are supposed to protect the environment to the optimal extent possible. And then we're also public agencies, so we should be public servants. So the idea is that we should, obviously we have to stay within our legal lanes, but we need to look for opportunities to widen those lanes and make as much of a positive difference as we can. And I will say that that the paradigm of the water sector is really starting to change. The Water Environment Federation, the National Association of Clean Water Agencies, and the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency work together to, to create a relatively new initiative called the Clean Water Utility of the Future, with the idea that water utilities should go above and beyond just meeting the permit. Now, bear in mind, meeting the permit is absolutely essential. That should be the floor of aspirations, not the ceiling. The ceiling should be that we should actually be seen as and act as environmental champions and anchor institutions in our communities. And that's what this Utility of the Future initiative is, this joint initiative by the EPA, the Water Environment Federation, and the National Association of Clean Water Agencies. And thus far, they have over 150 utilities that have, have signed up for this proposition, which is really good. Now, I will say, that on the one hand, there are 14,000 wastewater utilities, so 150 is a, pardon the pun, a drop in the bucket. But on the other hand, what's good about it is there's 150 are some of the largest utilities in the country. So that maybe it's only 150 out of 14,000, but most of the largest ones in the country have signed up. So maybe 75 to 80% of residents of the United States are served by a utility that believes in those kinds of principles. So it needs to go further. And the U.S. Water Alliance is working on an initiative, a national water equity initiative, which I'm lucky enough to be working on to try to encourage as many utilities as possible to take that approach to be anchor institutions in the community and look for opportunities to do as much good as they can. Right. One of the things that I was thinking of is now that you've kind of moved on from the Municipal Utility Authority, you brought in a culture of creating an institution that was a good neighbor, that was an anchor institution. How do you, I guess, ensure that that kind of culture and that kind of spirit continues on after your time is done at the institution? Well, thanks. That's a very good question. And something I thought a lot about during my time, because I was the deputy director for many years and then the executive director for eight years too. So I've been thinking a lot about that because I didn't want this work to be just a moment in time and then for things to go back to the way they were. So now it's almost like leaving a will. You personally can leave a will and with as much intentionality as possible, but there's only so much you can affect after you're gone or from beyond the situation. But you can, I think, be strategic. And that's what I I was very mindful of doing. So the one thing is I wanted to make sure that it was not only top-down driven in the organization, but also that my fellow colleagues and employees within the utility saw the value of what was doing. So it was important to hire people that would be like-minded, and especially people who might be positioned to be decision makers in the future after I left. Like my deputy, I think my former deputy, who's now the head of the agency, it was very much a, a kindred spirit and wanted to do as much good as possible. So I think that was really important. Now, 
you can't always control who's going to succeed you, but at least you maximize the opportunity. So I think that's important. So in addition to planting people in the organization, hopefully in, in decision-making after you've left, people who are kindred spirits and who believe the same sorts of things. The other thing is to do things that make it very difficult to undo the, the improvements that you've made. So for example, the odor control equipment was all automated so that you literally have to purposely tear it apart in order to get rid of it. And it was funded through the federal grant program or federal low interest loan program to take it out of service would actually cause a fine. You know, it would be like consequences. So that was done with an intentionality. The other thing is, is like the green infrastructure in the, the largest riverfront parks have been created. I had conservation easements placed on the parks so that even if future generations want to undo that, they can't because it's a permanent conservation easement. So the idea was to look for ways to physically prevent backtracking or backsliding to try to plant like-minded people within the agency that would continue on. But also it was very important to be as public as possible too. Like for example, I mentioned that environmental management international standard for efficiency and the annual certification. Well, I don't think the utility would want to lose their certification. Like I made it, I made a very big deal about the fact that there were only 35 utilities in the whole country that had this certification. They were public about it. So it would be deemed by decision makers that they wouldn't want to lose that certification. It would look bad if after all these years, after 20 years, they lost the certification for efficiency. So you can't affect things from beyond the grave, so to speak, but you can try to plant things or plant seeds in place that will hopefully improve the probability of, of things remaining. There'll be no backsliding and hopefully they'll go forward. Right. And I think those are the type of initiatives that help elevate the institution and make it stronger. And hopefully future leaders will be able to see that as well. So what I'm hearing is that what makes an anchor institution is one that is able to speak the language of decision makers and be prepared to defend yourself. The other is being intentional and having a positive impact and doing no harm. The other is staying in your lane, but knowing how to widen your lane and building that trust for the public. And it's also finding the right partners like you did with the Green Stormwater Project. And it's finding your peers. So now that you have successfully implemented what I think is to be like an environmentally, socially responsible institution within a community, how are you kind of helping to spread that message in this new phase of your journey? Oh, oh, thanks. So I did retire from the utility after 34 years in February, and I got two really amazing jobs splitting my time between. The first is with uh, Moonshot Missions, which is a nonprofit. Both are nonprofits. Moonshot Missions is a nonprofit that is designed to help water utilities improve their performance, lower their costs, become anchor institutions, and do it for utilities that serve underserved communities. So the idea is to try to help those utilities accomplish their moonshot for their neighbors. So I really like it because it gives me a chance to problem solve for other communities, offer solutions that I'm familiar with either that I worked on in Camden or saw others of my colleagues in the sector do. And that's one thing I would point out is that the good news about the public sector is that they're really glad to share information. Like if McDonald's do something about how to make a better burger, they would never share it with Burger King or vice versa. But right in the public sector, we're not competitive. We're glad to share information. But the thing is, is that underserved communities rarely are in that network because 
they don't have the funds to go to conferences or they don't know the utility leaders in the sector. So they're often having to reinvent the wheel in a silo. And so the idea of this Moonshot Missions really is to be like a bee pollinating good ideas from one flower to the next, but especially for non-networked utilities, utilities that aren't looped into the, the newer innovations and the newer ideas. And so that's one. And then the other thing I'm working on is, and I alluded to it earlier, is I'm working with the U.S. Water Alliance on their Water Equity Initiative. They had chosen seven cities to be pilot utilities for this water equity initiative. The cities of Atlanta, Buffalo, Camden, when I was there, Cleveland, Louisville, Milwaukee, and Pittsburgh to be the initial pilot cities to implement water equity programs where the water utility is an anchor institution for equity for the community. And they have a plan to grow that from seven to 75 within the next three years. And I'm working with them to try to help that. But ultimately, our goal is to try to make sure that that's the rule, not the exception for the whole water sector. It starts with seven and 75, but hope, hopefully there'll eventually be a, a tipping point where it becomes the norm and that we're seen as environmental champions because we are. We're protecting public health and the rivers and streams of, of our watersheds. And that we're also seen as anchor institutions because we are public servants. So my hope is to help between sort of at the, at the microscopic level with Moonshot, helping utility by utility, like a bee pollinating good ideas from one flower to the next. And then also working on this macroscopic program with the U.S. Water Alliance. So I'm um, really excited about both and feel lucky to have those opportunities. Yeah, those sound like really exciting opportunities. And thank you for committing your time, your expertise to a really noble cause. And we need a lot more people like you. <laughs> uh, thank you. There are actually really some really great people in the, in the water sector, some amazing leaders. So I'm lucky to know them. Yes. And I think it's more often than not, we need to be talking to each other. And also we have good intentions, I must say. And it's just that sometimes we may not know how to navigate through these new waters, no pun intended, of being an anchor institution. So what are some of the barriers that you're seeing, if any, now that you are contributing your time to other institutions that are looking to implement water equity? Well, let's see. I think that one barrier is that although there are many water utilities that really are committed to social justice and doing the right thing, and some of the larger cities in the country, therefore servicing more people, there are still a lot of utilities that think the old way that their goal is to meet the permit and comply with regulations, which again, that's very important. It's just that they shouldn't be limited to that. So I think part of it is, is spreading the, the notion that it can be done, number one. And then number two, that it has been done. And here there are some examples already of how to do it. So one of the things the National Association of Clean Water Agencies, NACLA, did in 2017 is they put together a compendium of case studies of 14 clean water utilities, and my utility was one of them, that were committed to community service and their neighbors. And they sent it out to every single member in the association, every single clean water utility in the association to show that this is something that utilities can and should be thinking about. And then like I mentioned, the Water Environment Federation and NAPA and EPA worked on this Utility of the Future initiative to, again, try to change that paradigm. And then the U.S. Water Alliance is trying to do it with their water equity initiative. So the idea is, first of all, to make sure that people see that it, it's something that they should be thinking about. For example, like prior to, to, I don't know, 2000, how many people were thinking about global warming? Maybe not. Maybe, maybe some, but not certainly now it's on everyone's mind, including the water sector. So the idea is to try to to push that to the forefront of the consciousness of the water sector as a whole. And then once we do that, then there still will be the individual challenges, like the ones I face in Camden, 
with policymakers that don't see the value in it or are afraid about rate increases. And you're going to have to, each utility will have to sort of slug it out with the various deterrents that they're going to, or barriers they're going to face. But I think those general principles that I outlined will be the way to get there once they're, once they see that that's the right path. And I believe that most utility managers are good problem solvers. They'll find a way, get around those local barriers. The key is to get them to have that intentionality to begin with. Right. Just saying that it's the right thing to do is almost never the right thing to say because we know it. But I think the economics of it also does play a factor. Is that something that you're finding where utilities are asking, yes, we really want to do this, but how do we go about implementing it from like an organizational perspective and do you walk them through or prepare them through any kind of objections or pushback that they may get from their decision makers? Yes, that's a great question. Exactly right. Well, one thing I would say is that very often doing the right thing is also doing the smart thing. So in many instances, you can find ways that we can look for the triple bottom line of environmental benefit, economic benefit, and community benefit, and they align in the same way. It isn't always a trade-off. So I think that would be the one thing would be to show those opportunities. Like for example, there was a project implemented to reduce the, the treatment plans of vulnerability to power outages, which would obviously have a, a very bad environmental impact and social benefactor if this treatment plant was overflowing sewage into the river. So we were able to get the plant off the grid and it runs entirely on solar and biogas. So no outside. So if there's a power outage in Camden, the treatment plant will still run. But it happened to be more cost effective than the old way anyway. So it was the right thing to do and it saved money. There are many examples like that. Unless a plan is running at optimal efficiency already, then usually there's opportunities to improve efficiency and, and also therefore find ways to make it better for the community too. And so that would be the one thing I would offer would be to look for these ways of improving efficiency because they're liable to be aligned with community benefit as well as cost benefit. And then the other thing would be just to be mindful, as you'd said earlier, and as I'd said, to think about what the objections would be and be prepared for them in advance. I mean, you can't anticipate everything, but you certainly can anticipate some things. Mm -hmm. What are some of the common kind of pushbacks or questions that you or and your fellow utility leaders received when you were proposing such projects? Well, one would be that, well, first thing to make sure is that you can legally do it so that you'd have to demonstrate that there's a nexus between what you're proposing to do and your legal mission. So, but for example, again, if you're, if you're always thinking about how to do as much good as possible, you can usually find a way to do it. So for example, we could build a park in Camden City and build several that would soak up the stormwater, but we couldn't spend a dime on, on a park bench or, or playground equipment. But we partnered with the Trust for Public Land, one of our partners, and so they were glad to see someone turning a, a brownfield site into a park. They were glad to get funding from other foundations to build the playground equipment or the park benches. So even though we couldn't legally put in playground equipment or park benches, we could find a partner who could if we could provide the park. So that would be one. Another thing would be we can't afford to raise rates. So the idea would be, first of all, it may be a cost-saving initiative. So it might be that you're actually taking a cost-saving initiative and using some of those savings to bring about a community benefit. Also, finding funding, and this is another issue where underserved communities and environmental justice communities are underserved in the sense that there's many instances where there's funding that they qualify for, but they lack the resources to apply for the funding. Like I saw that again and again with Camden City, where they were eligible for funding, but didn't have the resources to apply for the funding. So a lot of the projects that we did that helped the city was just to stand in for them and apply 
for the funding, get the funding, the much cheaper funding, much lower interest rates for loans, for example, implement the project for them, and then they would help with the costs. So in other words, rather than them, they're having to like you know do a project at five percent interest because they could just call a bank and get that, but it took a lot more work to get the state revolving fund money, which was one percent interest, but and they didn't have the resources for that. So an underserved community might be paying you know four percent more interest, which is a, like a thirty percent more cost over time. So the people that can, the cities that can lease or municipalities that can lease afford it are paying the highest interest rate because they lack the resources to, to apply for the lower cost funding. So the thing would be to look for cost saving initiatives, but also to look for funding. And if you're an underserved community, look for help to get that funding. Mm. Yeah, it sounds like there was a lot of persistence, <laughs> creativity, and strategic partnerships to ensure that if there was something that you couldn't do within your legal jurisdiction that you had a partner who could, and that could help you see sort of the end of the or completion of the project. Yes, that's right. And I think the thing is, is that if you are truly good intentioned, one of the community leaders that really inspired me, uh, Father Michael Doyle uh, in the Waterfront South neighborhood, he used to always say that if you mean to do well, if you mean to do good, then your help will be found. And I think that is true, whether you're religious or just believe in karma or doing the right thing. I do believe that if you're striving to do good, you'll obviously find opposition too. But you will find like-minded partners that will help you. But the key is that is the intentionality. If you say that thinking that you want to do as much good as possible, you focus on that, then ideas will come to you because you're looking for those ideas. So it's like the saying that the luck is the residue of design. Because you're looking for opportunities, then you're ready when, when opportunity knocks, so to speak. Right. You're poised for that moment for all the planets to align. <laughs> That's a perfect way of saying it. Absolutely <laughs> right. Because you're looking for it. You won't miss it because you were looking for it to begin with. Yeah. That's great. That's great. I really appreciate you sharing the details of your experiences and how you went about implementing the projects, how you went about working with the communities. One of the things that you mentioned earlier on or in our previous conversation is that a part of being an anchor institution is that you served as a liaison between the authority and the community, the neighborhood that was located 100 yards from the wastewater treatment plant. And I think that kind of intentionality is really inspiring for me, at least, because it, it demonstrates that you're truly wanting to listen to what the community has to say and that you have their best interest at heart. Well, thank you. That's very important. Again, like I said from the beginning, I was lucky because they were very inspiring to begin with in themselves. But, but that's one thing I would also say for people who are trying to make a difference is that it doesn't always have to cost money. So for example, you just raised a good example. So let's say they were having, the community was having a problem with their trash pickup or the electric company was damaging their street. Well, it's very hard for the average resident in any situation, especially in an economic stress community, when they have, you know, they're up to the ears with other troubles to try to get through the labyrinth to get to the right person. But I, as the head of the water utility and as a governmental official, could easily get through to the right person. So I told them that they should let me know about anything that was going on in the community. And all it cost me was time, you know, sweat equity. It wasn't, it didn't cost the agency anything for me to pick up the phone and call the electric company and say, can we find a way to put that electric line in without breaking up the community's pavement? Or can we find a way to, what happened with the lights? Why are they out? Can they be repaired? Those sorts of things. Or applying for funding on behalf of the city, even though they would have to pay back the loan, but just applying for the funding and implementing the project, even though we were, would be repaid, 
meant that there was no, no penny went out of the pockets of the utility, but we were helping something happen and advancing the project. So a lot of times providing resources. Right. And I also saw the elements of empowering the community through the youth empowerment program of providing them with employment, a training center to help build their capacity so that there was an opportunity for them to kind of explore their own economic prosperity beyond what they had experienced so far in their economically distressed neighborhoods and experiences. So giving that kind of hope, but also tangible tools for them to kind of go into the world and create a path for themselves is something that you don't necessarily see utilities doing. Maybe that's just my perspective. Well, there are some that do it. San Francisco, the city of Seattle, the city of Atlanta, Cleveland, Milwaukee, Louisville. I mean, I'm forgetting a few. But I'm sorry, but there's, there's some really amazing water use leaders that are very committed to social justice. Alexandria, Virginia, Hampton Rose, Virginia. There's a couple dozen that are really invested in it. It needs to be more. It needs to be the rule, not the exception. But I will say this, Everything that was done in Camden while I was there or everything that these other utilities I mentioned are are doing, it's replicable. It's absolutely replicable. And the key for those who care is to try to create that culture throughout the entire sector. And that's what we're doing with these various national initiatives to try to change the paradigm one utility at a time or hopefully a dozen utilities at a time and hundreds of utilities at a time eventually so that becomes the rule, not the exception, because we really have the ability to make a positive difference for the people that we serve. And since we do have that ability, we have a corresponding responsibility to do so. Yes, I completely agree. And I'm glad that there are other cities, utilities that are committed to a similar cause. It really just, it makes a world of a difference and can't wait to see how you build a network from seven to 75? From seven to 75 and then hopefully to 7,500 actually. <laughs> <laughs> but first, first step but, is seven to 75. Yeah, that's a good tagline there, 7 to 75. Well, I'm really glad that we were able to have this conversation. And now we're getting into the lightning round of our little talk here. And so I have a series of four questions. The first question here is, what have you read, heard, or watched lately that has influenced you the most? Well, I think what's influenced me the most lately is what's going on with the COVID-19 and it's amazingly sad to see so many deaths and so much economic hardship, but it's also amazingly inspiring to see how many people, doctors, nurses, water professionals, professionals in every area that are, are stepping up. So I think that they say that there's, you know, whenever there's a fire, there's the people that run from the fire and there's the people that run toward the fire. And so I'm very inspired by the people who are risking their lives and giving their time and their talents to help people. Yeah. I completely agree. And I think our community as a whole just tends to take water for granted. But I'm very grateful that we're able to just still turn on our taps or faucets and get clean drinking water. So hats out to our utility workforce out there. What's a personal habit that has helped you significantly in your work? Tenacity. It's something I have to thank my high school cross-country coach, Mr. James for always telling me about never giving up and that you get out of things what you put into them. I found it to be true back in high school and I found it throughout my life that it doesn't guarantee success, but there's no doubt that the more you put into things, the more you get out of them. Yeah. It sounds like you had inspiring mentors when you're in high school, your chemistry teacher, your coach. I was really <laughs> lucky. Awesome. I really yeah. was. That's great. No doubt. Yep. 
That's a shout out to teachers and coaches that you uh, make more of a difference than you'll ever know. Yes, yes. And just unfortunately undervalued. What's the best piece of advice you've received? Best piece of advice I've ever received is that the most important thing in life is kindness. That's a good one. That's really good advice. And it's totally true. Yep. And you see it in your work that you've done over the years. So it speaks for itself. Finally, what is your superpower? I think my superpower is this tenacity that I'm definitely, I don't really quit. I think it's a combination of tenacity, but a very strong desire. This is instilled from my mother, actually. I was really little, uh, doing right by people, wanting to make a positive difference. And I think so, a compassion for other people and then tenacity to try to see it through. Mm, that's a good superpower. And that's rare. what I strive for. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I have it, but I strive for it. Well, that's half the battle. <laughs> right, it is. For example, if you have to walk from New York to Los Angeles, it's a very long walk, but you have to be pointed west. You have to know what to strive for. That's the most, that is the, more than half the battle, for sure. Right. I think it's being intentional and purposeful as well. But yeah. All right. So as we put a pause on our conversation here, how can we follow you on your journey? Well, I'm working with two nonprofits, like I said. I'm working with uh, Moonshot Missions. and You can follow them at www.moonshotmissions.org. And I'm also working with the U.S. Water Alliance at uswateralliance.org. And you can always contact me. My email is acrecken at aol.com. And if anyone in the water sector would ever want my help or if I could be of help, I'd really be glad to because it's an important mission that we have. So please feel free to contact me. Of course, you have you know how to get a hold of me too, Satna. So it'd be my pleasure. And so, yeah, please do. Please contact me if I can be of help. Of course. And... I hope you're able to expand the network here. Is there anything else that you would like to add? Yes. So I mentioned I'm an engineer, but I'm really like a, I guess a liberal arts major wannabe. And so even though I'm an engineer, I'm going to close with a quote from George Eliot's Middlemarch, which I think is an important takeaway. And that is that the greater good of the world is largely due to the unhistoric acts of dedicated men and women who may dwell in unvisited tombs. I think the idea there that to have a faith that what we're doing to make a positive difference does matter more than you'll ever know. Like the teachers who helped inspire me who may not know how much you know, good they did or you know, each individual that we help with that, our Power for program. So each of you who are out there in service, whether you're a teacher or a doctor or a nurse or a social worker or environmentalist or a water professional, that you're doing more good than you'll ever know. So if you're feeling down, keep the faith and you are making more of a positive difference. You are adding to the greater good of the world than you may have her now. So that would be my last uh, thing to say. That's beautiful. And it's inspiring for me because I think we work in a thankless <laughs> profession. And I think that there's a desire to, to do good and a desire to be persistent and make change, which kind of overrides like the thankless element of the work that we do. So... Thank you for that. That was very inspiring. Well, you're definitely a kindred spirit because you want to do <laughs> the right thing and, and make a difference. So it's making more good than you know. So <laughs> stick with it. Definitely. I will try to the best of my ability. <laughs> I, know, I know you will. During downtimes, I might just call you. <laughs> of course. Hey, all Thanks for listening to Breaking Green Ceilings. If you'd like to hear more episodes with change-making environmentalists, head on over to watersavvysolutions.com backslash podcast. You can find me online on Instagram and Twitter 
And as always, if you love the show, please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and like on iTunes. You can also sign up for my newsletter to find out when new episodes are available. And please do share the podcast with your family, friends, colleagues, and whoever you think will be inspired by the wisdom of our change makers. I always welcome feedback, so please do feel free to reach out to me. My contact information is also on watersavvysolutions.com. Until next time, keep breaking through those green ceilings.